The Three Commandants. Camp commandants were in complete charge of our camp and our lives and terrifying in their total power. Any one of them could turn into the angel of death at any moment. They gave orders without hesitation, without the possibility of an appeal. They were judge, jury, and executioner. I never discovered anything about these men behind the SS masks. We never got to hear their names. Their commandant was all we needed to know. Even their rank, SS Obersturmführer, which is equivalent to lieutenant, was seldom heard in the camp because other SS officers and soldiers did not as a rule address them by their rank. Commandants came and went, each with his own idiosyncrasies. They were allegedly brought in for a while to recuperate at a cushy job in the camp after serving on the front lines. Then they were shipped off to the front again to fight the Allies. We believe that they left unwillingly, particularly when sent to the Soviet front. Of those I remember, one was a musician, one appeared to be a medical student, and another was a vicious, crude guy with a potty mouth. There were others who I barely remember. Among ourselves, we assigned them nicknames, and that is how I remember them. The musician. I can't remember whether he was short or tall, but I recall the unusual sight of him walking around the camp with a violin in his hands. Sometimes he played the simple tune, some folkslied, folk song. We thought that he must have been a village musician before the war. He had a finely chiseled face and often looked sad. He did his job without the enthusiasm of a real believer in the task. Naturally, he did not last long in our camp. But before he was sent back to the front lines, he undertook one interesting project. As usual, before going to work, we stood for roll call on the Appellplatz. We were already used to a lengthy procedure of counting the living and laying out the prisoners who had died during the night. When the total showed that not one soul, living or dead, was missing, we could march away to work. But one morning, the commandant had an unusual request. If there are any musicians amongst you, step forward now. There you were. A sizable number of musicians, including the conductor Misha Michael Hofmeckler and a famous violinist Alexander Stupel, had lived in Kaunas when the Soviet occupied Lithuania in 1940. When the German army came in 1941, they were confined in the ghetto with the other Jews from Kaunas, and Hofmeckler conducted the ghetto orchestra. There were many other fine musicians amongst the Kaunas Jews. People hesitated. It is never good to be singled out in a concentration camp. We couldn't tell what awaited us. The unwritten rule for survival in the camp was try to be invisible. March in the middle of a row, not at the edge. Never march in the first row or in the last. Be lost in the crowd.
The commandant waited in silence until several people stepped forward, haltingly. He told the rest of us to fill up the lines. There always had to be five people in a line. We were marched out to the worksite, leaving the apprehensive musicians in camp. We debated in whispers what the musician wanted with them. We had to wait until the end of our 12-hour shift, march back to the camp, stand for the second roll call, line up for the soup, the one slice of bread, and perhaps a square inch by square inch of cheese or margarine. Then walk into the barracks before we learned what happened to the musicians. The musician had asked each prisoner for his history and what instruments he played. He told them, you are not to go to work. I am going to create an orchestra and you will need to practice for a concert. The musicians became bolder when they heard this and respectfully informed him that they were so hungry that playing properly would be difficult. This was the late summer of 1944 when we had already been in the camp about a month and we were starving. No problem, the musician announced grandly. I will tell the kitchen to give you as much soup and bread as you can eat. Well, this was really good news for the musicians. A few days later, a pile of instruments arrived, a barrack was cleared out for the musicians, and music stands and chairs were brought in. We had never seen a chair in the camp. The commandant began to visit the barracks every morning after the roll call when the camp was quiet, because the night shift was sleeping and the day shift was at work. He discussed what music should be prepared for the concert he was planning. I was not there, but I heard that he listened to the advice and had some suggestions of his own. He also asked the musicians to suggest some Jewish music. And the musicians, after discussion, sort of call me Dre, by Max Bruch. Max Bruch, 1838-1920, a German composer, was a Protestant who had created this piece after the Jewish cantor introduced him to the plaintive melody of the Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, prayer of the same name. The tune is very familiar to any Jew who attends prayers. They also selected something by Mozart and several lighter pieces from Viennese operettas. The musicians started to eat, put some flesh on their bones, and began to look like they belonged to a race different from the rest of us. At the end of the summer, the commandant announced that we were going to have a concert in the camp on a Sunday and that visitors would be present. Sunday was not a resting day for everyone. We worked for two weeks non-stop and then were supposed to have one Sunday off, which, as I mentioned, sometimes did not happen. The work at the construction site could not stop, so we rotated in groups, getting the Sunday off at various times. There were always some prisoners around the camp on Sunday afternoon, after a day shift the previous day, and I was amongst them. The day before the concert, 
wooden boards were brought in and laid out to cover the mud in the open square in the center of the camp, where the daily roll call took place. Around the periphery, on three sides, were placed benches for the visiting audience. The following day, Sunday, in the early afternoon, all prisoners who were in camp were told to gather in rows of five and to line up in columns on one side of the concert area. The commandant was very excited. He was running around in a sweat, dealing with all the details like a mother at a wedding. <laughs> in the early afternoon, the camp gates were opened and the visitors began arriving. Officers in uniform, with their wives or girlfriends, townspeople in dark suits and ties, the women in summer dresses, white gloves, and large summer hats. What a strange sight these guests were to us. A touch of remembrance of normal life in this miserable camp. A modestly hot sun was shining indiscriminately on the whole Bavarian landscape and on our camp. The guests sat down on the benches. The musicians were already sitting on the platform. The commandant loudly instructed us, the prisoners standing at attention, to be at ease. He gave a little speech to the guests, welcoming them to the prisoner orchestra concert, loudly announced the name of the first piece, Colney Dre, and waved to the conductor to proceed. We prisoners did not expect to hear the plaintive tune of the song that started Yom Kippur's service during the holiest day of the year for Jews. We were astounded and then struck with grief. Our tears flowed freely. The greatest novelist could not make up a scene like this. At the end of each musical number, the guests seemed uncertain whether it was okay to applaud. There was some hesitant, gentle clapping. Then the concert was over, and the guests filed out, throwing us prisoners sidelong glances. The following week, a new commandant appeared in the camp for morning roll call. The musician was gone, probably sent to the Soviet front. I heard that this new commandant walked around the camp after the morning shift had departed for work and heard music playing. He followed his ears and came upon the barrack occupied by the musicians. He opened the door and looked in. The musicians immediately stopped practicing, jumped up and removed their caps. Standard behavior when any officer or guard entered. The commandant looked around and asked, What are you doing? Practicing, sir, came the reply. Practicing for what? asked the commandant. One musician answered, We don't know, sir. The previous commandant told us to practice every day, so we practice. Out of here, you lazy Jewish swine, the commandant shrieked and stepped away from the door. The musicians ran outside each one receiving a kick in the ass from the agile commandant on the way out. Then the commandant grabbed some instruments and smashed them on the floor. Finally, he turned to the terrified members of the orchestra and shouted, Tomorrow you go back to work with everyone else, 
lazy swine. Obviously, this commandant did not like music. The medical student. I don't really know whether he was a medical student, but his interest in medicine became clear very soon after he arrived. The new commandant came into the hospital barracks to be shown around by our doctor. He asked where the operating theater was. Dr. Zaharin told him that we did not have one and said, anyway, the prisoners are so undernourished that there would be no point operating on them. The commandant was not satisfied with the answer and insisted that we needed an operating room. Dr. Zaharin told him that we had no equipment. Give me a list of requirements, said the commandant. The doctor prepared an extensive list of the equipment required. He hoped to get rid of him that way. Two weeks later, two huge crates arrived. I was told to unpack them. Inside was everything the doctor had put on his list, and in fact, much more. Even a whole pack of vitamins by Hoffman La Roche of Switzerland. I made use of all the vitamins we received in the shipment. Getting permission from the doctor to distribute the vitamin C and vitamin E to patients. They loved it. Something to put in their mouths. And they begged for more. Dr. Zaharin instructed me to build an operating room. I constructed an operating table made of wood, padded with blankets. I laid out all the equipment and connected the sterilizers. Every day the commandant came in and asked whether there were any operations planned for the day. One day, a patient came in and was diagnosed with an appendix attack. Dr. Zaharin said, We might as well operate. He will die anyway. The commandant was informed about the impending operation, and Dr. Zaharin told me that I would be assisting. I pleaded total ignorance in these matters, telling him that I was a metal worker. I suggested that he ask the other doctor who worked in the hospital barrack, but he refused, saying, that doctor was an internist and knows nothing of surgery. Your mother knew how to do it, and you will know too. Apparently, he saw that skills got transmitted through generations by DNA. I asked what I should do, and he showed me how to sterilize the dog instruments and prepare all the swabs and bandages. He told me to boil two pairs of operating gloves since we did not have a special sterilizer for that purpose. I put the gloves in a pot of water and boiled them just before the operation. The doctor came in and asked for the gloves. So I pulled them out with a tweezer from a pot. He looked at the gloves full of water and asked, how can I put them on if they are wet inside? I was also wondering about that, I said. <laughs> he gave a grunt and said that I should have tied them up first. I thought back to the blacksmith in the ghetto. The commandant was there, standing at a respectful distance with his hands behind his back. Our doctor injected the patient, put him under, and the operation began. Dr. Zaharin was also a professor of surgery before the war. Now he had an audience, 
so he began a commentary about what he was doing. When he asked me to hand him instruments, he pointed carefully at them so that I would know which one he meant. He cut open the patient, pulled out the appendix, which was green and brown with infection, tied it up and removed it. He then closed up the patient, sewing the stitches with remarkable dexterity. A happy ending. This prisoner survived the war. We had a second operation. A patient had a twisted bowel, and an operation was unavoidable. The medical student had another lecture in surgery. That prisoner would have survived too, but he later died of hunger. Soon after that second operation, the medical student was replaced by a new commandant who never set foot in the hospital. The last commandant. He had one name only for us prisoners. Assholes. It sounds even worse in German. Arschlöcher. We reciprocated and called him by precisely the same name. Der Arschloch. <laughs> His real name was Otto Firschner. By this time, we knew that Germany had lost the war and that the American army was very close. This last commandant knew it too and felt sore that the Germans lost the war, and he was vicious. He appeared to always be in the bad mood and would hit and kick us for the slightest reason. In the mornings during the appell, when the Allied bombers flew overhead, he would make us lie face down in the mud. If he saw someone lift his head to look at the planes, he would kick him and force his head down into the mud with his boot. One morning, when spring was in the air and he noticed that we looked a little hopeful, he gave us a talk. You assholes, you think that you will survive the war and be free? Let me assure you, we are keeping the last bullet for you. No matter how the war ends, you will not survive. So forget about it. We had good reason to believe him. I have read the proceedings of the first Dachau war crimes trial in November 1945, which took place about seven months after the liberation of Dachau by the American army. The trial was managed by the American army when the first 40 accused men who served in Dachau and the outside camps like Kaufering 1, my camp, were tried. Firschner was condemned to death and was hanged at Landsberg Prison on May 28, 1946. Most of the others accused in that trial were also executed. They are all buried in a church cemetery within sight of the Landsberg Prison where Hitler had been locked up in 1924. I visited the site in 2010 while attending commemoration events at Dachau, 65 years after liberation. All the graves are unmarked, but they have a cross on them. My well-informed guide and friend, Lieutenant Colonel Gerhard Rolecek of the German Air Force, showed me which grave was Firschner's? I did not dance on his grave, but my mind did.